Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Before we begin, get back into uh, our church fathers. So this week I was at a pastor's conference and we had continuing ed classes. And the one that I took was on Luther in education. And it just reminded me all the more the importance of uh, for all of us to continue in the text of, of the small catechism. We ought not to think of the catechism ever as something that we outgrow, that's something that we do when we're young. Um, it's a tool for all of life. Think of it, I was trying to think, going to find a picture that I could put up that would try to depict this. What I was looking for would be like a little kid, you know, like a four-year-old dressed in adult, like, combat wear. <laughs> like, way too big for him at that age. But it's, 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 it's a tool and a defense for when he is older. The reason that we learn it when we're young is so that we know it now. So if we don't know it now, then, well, we, we have the chance to continue in these, in these words. So you know that on the, on the sheet, there's a section of the catechism every week. So just we've done this before. We just want to put it on, make sure it's on our lips. What I'd recommend is that you get your catechism out at home and every day this week, just one section, one little section, and just read it out loud. Um, you might find that you, if you did remember, memorize it as a kid, or as a, as a catechumen, that it might come back to you, and that would be great. Um, or at least that you, you are familiar with the words, but reading it out loud is great. So let's do that. The introduction, our Father who art in heaven. What does this mean? With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true Father and that we are his true children so that with all boldness and confidence, we may ask him as dear children ask their dear father. You might find that the words, the exact translation that you used when you were learning it is a little bit different. Yes, that's probably true. So what you do is either you learn it in a new one or you use your old book and keep it. No, do whatever you want. Learning and remembering the words is the most important thing. Um, uh, so, also on the sheet each week there's a hymn. Just a, I just want to give you a brief. So this week's hymn is "Come, You Faithful, Raise the Strain." Come, you faithful, raise the strain. Uh, hymn 142 in the hymnal. Uh, it's written by John of Damascus, who's also the author of the hymn, one hymn that we'll sing this morning, "The Day of Resurrection." Uh, we sing both of these as part of the Easter Vigil. Um, but originally it wasn't written for the Easter Vigil, it was actually written for St. Thomas Sunday. You want to guess, anyone know what Sunday, St. Thomas Sunday would be? We don't call it that. Which one? Which Sunday of the church year do we hear about, I, do we hear about Thomas, doubting Thomas? And I, yeah, last Sunday. Um, I, there was a snowstorm and <laughs> But, um, but yeah, last Sunday, uh, we call it, well, second Sunday of Easter, or quasi-monogeneity is the, is the old name. Um, but in the Eastern Church, that's what they call it, St. Thomas. So they read the same reading as we did back in John of Damascus Day, which is interesting. But for that Sunday in the Eastern Church, they eat what they call today the Eastern Orthodox. In the Eastern Church, um, they had a whole... Um, structure for hymns, apparently, I don't know much about it, where for, the, for each Sunday there was a canon for the Sunday, and the canon consisted of, of up to nine canticles, biblical canticles, but then there would be written an ode on each, each an ode on each of those canticles, um, and then within the ode there were stanzas, which would tropes or troparia. This hymn was based on the, I forget which one, um, on, a, on a certain ode on the canon for St. Thomas Sunday. And, and so the day of resurrection that we're seeing during communion today, that was written for the canon on Easter matins. So for first Sunday on Easter morning, uh, but they were, it's basically you wrote a hymn that was based on a biblical canticle. So in this case, the biblical canticle 
was on Exodus 15. If I understand this right, so for any Sunday in the year, they could take any of those biblical canticles, like um, the Song of Mary, um, the first song of Isaiah, that's what you're hearing being sung right upstairs right now, that the choir's going to sing in two weeks, uh, Isaiah 12, Habakkuk, don't know the chapter, Isaiah 55, these songs in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, biblical songs, and they would write their songs based on biblical songs, but they would change throughout the year. Um, it's fascinating. I'll, I'll, I'm going to, I found another rabbit hole. <laughs> but I, um, it's, there's a whole lot that might be able to learn, but that's the background of this, of this hymn, Come You Faithful, Raise the Strayed. The reason that we'll sing it at the Easter Vigil is because Exodus 14, the, the crossing of the Red Sea, is part of the Easter Vigil readings. And so uh, it, it has a lot of connection, both the day of resurrection and come you faithful, raise the strain. If you were at the Easter Vigil, you'll hear a lot of those kind of connections. We were talking about origin. Unless anyone has any follow-up from last time. Origin. Um, we had just talked a little bit about uh, him. I'm not going to go at we had mentioned, so just like with other church fathers, but maybe a little bit more with Origen, we can find in his writings a lot of what we would call false teaching. Like it seems to be that he had denied original sin, for one. Um, he was, what were some of the other ones? Um, purgatory seems to show up in some of his writings. Uh, maybe even a universalism. Universalism is where just to everyone... Everyone just goes to heaven. The um, Bible doesn't teach that. So we find these things. Um, exegetical works. Exegetical writings are where you're writing from the, the text of Scripture, usually the Greek or the Hebrew, drawing out. Exegesis means to draw out. You know, it's pulling out all the meaning that, that one will find um, in that. Uh, that hexapla I talked about last time. So it's a version of the Old Testament in six different, not six different languages, because it was mainly Hebrew and Greek, but versions. So it was, it was Hebrew editions and Greek editions, um, Greek editions of the Old Testament, like the Septuagint, and you can kind of see some of the columns. So he would like, it was a comparative version of the Old Testament, looking at all the different versions and seeing where they were the same, where they were different and, and such, okay? That's origin. Uh, we, as an example of, of just a, a valuable writing, in the, the one that's on your sheet there is a quote from a sermon, sermon, a homily, um, where, where he says, let him set aside one or two hours every day for God and come to the church for prayer and let him hear the word of God at, at least in passing. So if you come, it's interesting. If, if you would just set aside one or two hours of the day for prayer and the word of God, then at least he has exposure to the word of God in passing. I don't think we would, we would say it that way, right? If someone spent an hour or two, hour or two of their day, we would consider them the most pious and that we would not say that was only in passing. <laughs> um, interesting. Um, another quote that I had found from Origen that I, that I thought was interesting. So it's talking about whether someone who, who's, who's a Christian, but then they fall away, can they, can they come to repentance? Um, and, and he says, he says he should, not be he should be reluctant to sin again, but to, repeat again, or to repent again, he should not be reluctant. Um, they have this, this cycle of falling away and coming back to faith. He says, be reluctant to sin again, to fall into sin again, but to... Don't be reluctant to repent again. We're always in need of repentance, right? But we do want to avoid. If we do fall, when we do fall, when we do fall into sin, constantly falling, coming into repentance. Cyprian of Carthage, last one. Cyprian of Carthage. What, one thing that's interesting in here is he, he is, let's see if I can find the, the dates. Um, Becomes a Christian in 246. 
about 246. And then by popular acclaim, he becomes the Bishop of Carthage in 240. And here it says 248. So it's three years later. But not a very long period of time here. Um, he's, he's a new Christian. And I don't think he puts himself forward for this, but they, they make him bishop just a couple years after he becomes a Christian. You do see that sometimes in the early church. Uh, contrary to what we read in the New Testament when it talks about a, a, an overseer not to be a new convert, I think this would probably be, uh, there's a warning in the New Testament about someone becoming uh, overseers, the, the New Testament word, a pastor, too quickly after becoming a Christian, um, lest he be tempted to conceit. Uh, but, but you do see that in, in some of these cases. In some cases, like they, there's, uh, I don't know who it is, I should know, where they want to make him bishop, but he hasn't been baptized yet. <laughs> So they quick, quick baptize him so that we can make a bishop. Um, if we think we're hard up for pastors, <laughs> um, it's, not, it's not terribly new. Uh, okay, so we're going to talk later today here about the early persecutions. And one of the things that, that happens is that during the persecutions, uh, those who are accused of being Christians have the opportunity to renounce Christ and get out of trouble. Uh, and so the, they had the, a name for these people who had done this, and they were the lap, lopsy, the lapsed, right? They had given up the faith in time of persecution. Uh, and so the, the debate in the church was, what do we do with them now after the persecution? Um, so in order to get out of trouble... All you'd have to do is you, whatever would satisfy the person who was trying you, whatever, and you'd get a slip of paper, which was, well, the, uh, a labelli, a labellus, labelli, uh, a piece of paper saying that you had done so. And so the la, labellatici were people who had gotten that piece of paper, uh, that they had, you know, cursed Christ or whatever, they had renounced, renounced the faith. And so the question was, in kind of, pastoral care and uh, discipline in the church, are they allowed to just just come back? They had, they had renounced the faith. They had given it up. Um, and one thing that happened, at least in, in Cyprian's case, he says, no, not, not right away. And that was generally the case. It was not yet. They never said no, not ever, for someone who repented. Um, but there was a, a time period where they were considered a kind of probation or something like that. That is, by the way, where the whole indulgence thing eventually comes from. Because um, eventually someone who they said not yet, they gave them a certain amount of time, or maybe in certain cases some way for them to show that they're, they're not going to just do this again or whatever, um, show fruits of faith. Um, they would sometimes indulge someone who had been faithful and had, you know, done that a little bit early. That was called an indulgence, is where they would allow someone, you know, uh, whether, whatever that was, maybe it was before you could come to communion again, there was a time period or something like that, and where they would indulge someone and let them come in early. That's where that whole thing comes from. But that they started charging for A thousand years later, yeah. So it, it shifts over time, but just the origin of it, where the whole idea comes from in the term, um, comes early on when this kind of controversy. Uh, but the controversy is over, well, so what happened is, in Cyprian's case is that he's the bishop of Carthage, and, it, and his decision is, you know, with certain people, not yet. Other people, um, and I don't know if they were rival bishops or just others, said, yeah, or other... Um, presbyters or other elders in the church, they, they were going against his decision and, and letting people come in, and that created controversy then too. Um, and so then, that's why he writes then, among other things, this is one thing that we have actually, is a document called On the Unity of the Church. And, and it kind of encouraging the church to be on the same page. And that when you do this and you have these different opinions and different practices that causes strife 
Um, and so that's where, that's where the, the first quote comes from. Although when I tried to find, I, on these pages I didn't always write down where the quote came from. And that got me into trouble because I look back and I can't find the original source. But I found another quote that has part of the same line. And I don't know how they, <laughs> I don't know if one was a paraphrase of something. So this is a fuller quote of the same idea where he says, whoever separated from the church and is joined with an adulteress is separated from the promises of the church, nor will he who has abandoned the church arrive at the rewards of Christ. Remember that when, he, when they're talking about the church, they're not specifically talking about it like an organizational structure. So he's not talking about like the Roman Catholic Church or the, you know, a, a particular congregation or such. He's saying... And that's why they capitalize it, too. When you talk about the church, you're talking about the gathering of the believers in Christ. The gathering of the Christians. And who is separated from the church is joined with an adulteress. It's separated from the promises of the church. Nor will he... Look, I mean, and so the promises of the church are really the promises of Christ, right? The church doesn't have its own promises. Um, and if he's abandoned the church, he won't get, receive the rewards of Christ. He's a stranger, he's profane, he's an enemy. He cannot have God as father who does not have the church as the mother. And that reflects the language like of St. Paul in Galatians 4. We read that uh, as the epistle lesson during Lent. I can't remember which Sunday during Lent. Um, where he talks about the Jerusalem that, uh, that is above. And that is our mother. Um, comparing Hagar, Sarah and Hagar as the, the, the two, comparison to the two women. Meaning, this is the place where we're given birth to as Christians. Where we get our life as Christians is from the church. But understand, what are you saying by the church? You're not talking about the organization of the church. We're talking about union with Christ. Um, without being connected to God's people gathered together, one can't be connected to God as Father. These, these work yeah, together. If whoever was outside the Ark of Noah was able to escape... He who is outside the church escapes. So he, um, like other writers, we compare the, the, the church to the ship of the church. This is often a symbol for the, the, the church, is the ship. Um, and again, it's not, we're not talking about a, a, a human organization as such. We're talking about the, the gathering of those in Christ. Um, the second quote on the sheet Cyprian writes, if Jesus Christ, our Lord and God, is himself the chief priest of God the Father and has first offered himself a sacrifice to the Father and has commanded this to be done in commemoration of himself, certainly that priest truly acts in the place of Christ who imitates what Christ did. Then he offers a true and full sacrifice in the church of God to God the Father when he proceeds to offer it according to what he sees Christ himself to have offered. The passion of the Lord is the sacrifice we offer. This is an example of early talk about the, the Mass, what eventually became known as the Mass and the, and the communion service as a sacrifice, um, which has brought challenge to the church over the years. This is one thing that Luther objected. So this is not a quote that we would say we're all on board with. Not that he's necessarily here... He's not saying all the wrong things that the Roman church said by the time of the Reformation. The, the view of the pastor, the priest, offering up kind of like, like play acting like we're Jesus and offering up a sacrifice. Jesus did his sacrifice on the cross. Now we're doing our sacrifice here. It's not really in line with Jesus' institution. We would talk about Jesus, the sacrament, as a gift which Jesus gives on because of his one time for all sacrifice. Um, rather than our sacrifice. Now we do, we do give sacrifice in a sense when we in, in even in the service and in the communion, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, a sacrifice of praise. But we're not sacrificing Jesus anymore, just so that we're clear, <laughs> right? But yet, it's interesting to see some of the the. the the problems that were in Rome that Martin Luther objected to over 500 years later, or a thousand years later, there are people starting to talk like that already back here. You get an example of Cyprian again, where he can say a lot of good things, 
but there are not, we're not going to subscribe to everything that any one of these people write. Right? Um, the, at the end of it, though, uh, you have, like we've seen before, this is a, a, an account of uh, Cyprian's end. So he's before the, the proconsul, before the authorities. Uh, the proconsul says, the most sacred emperors have commanded you to sacrifice. So this is the, the Roman uh, emperor worship. They have to offer the sacrifice to the Roman gods. Bishop Cyprian said, I will not. Galerius Maximus, reflect on it. <laughs> Think about this. <laughs> Think carefully. Uh, Bishop Cyprian said, do what you are ordered to do. In such, such a just case, there's no need for reflection. Uh, the proconsul said, since you are found to be the author of vilest crimes, by the standard bearer, you shall be a warning to those whom you have gathered about you in your crimes. By your blood, discipline will be, shall be established. And having said this, he read out the decree from the tablet. We command that Thasius Cyprian be executed by the sword. Bishop Cyprian said, thank God. When he had laid aside his priestly robe and given it to the deacons, he stood in his linen undergarments and waited for the executioner. He ordered his followers to give his executioner 25 pieces of gold. The blessed martyr Cyprian suffered under the emperors Valerian and Gallienus, Jesus Christ, the true God reigning. Um, I didn't write down where this, like who wrote down this, um, this account of Cyprian's end, uh, but he's executed. You know, say, before, before he goes, it says the, the, the executioner should get paid. You think? Pay him. Pay the man. Workers worthy of his wages. Um, it's kind of like, kind of like a Polycarp. You know, the, the soldiers who come to arrest him. Says, "You guys, have you guys eaten? <laughs> you know, you guys should have something to eat before we go." Yeah. Christians acting like Christians in the face of persecution, which is what we're going to talk about now. Um, early persecutions in the, in the church. You can see on your timeline um, noted on there are these times of persecution uh, the skull and the crossbones and the black section in each. Um, but, but one thing we want to remember that in these early years there's no like empire wide persecution. No from the top all, you know, all Christians must be dealt with in this way. There's a lot of local persecutions and, and, and circumstances. Obviously, there are, because we have a ton of time. I mean, we have the accounts of the deaths of people all during these, during these years. But it's not like an empire-wide thing where, you know, it's all happening the same everywhere. But we would assume that if, you know, some of these, right, these, these leaders in the church were dying, that there were others that we just, we don't hear about. Who knows how many, who knows how widespread we have. We have these accounts. Um, but to get, um, to kind of get our head around it, let's just think a little bit, and it's been referenced before because we've had some of these quotes, like in the last section on Cyprian, it talks about um, Cyprian committing the vilest of crimes, and he's kind of a ringleader, and, and we need to deal with this so we can, how did it say, um, it's like maintain, by your blood discipline shall be established. Like, we need, we need to maintain order, and this is getting out of hand, so we need to, they're, they're hoping to squash this so that it isn't a problem, the problem that they fear. What is, what, what's going on? So, You've heard of like the Roman gods, like the Roman Roman uh, pantheon. The, the, the way they viewed these gods as the protectorate and um, an indication of their success. So, if the Romans conquer another area, that must be because our gods were stronger than their gods. But when we go and and conquest as Romans, and we conquer another nation and their gods, so our gods beat their gods because we beat them, our army beat their army, then what they would do is incorporate those gods into their own pantheon. You know, so, so now that's how they became kind of an official part of the religion. They would, they would absorb these into their own. But you had people and groups 
that didn't have their own state, you know, the, the, their na national gods, or even God, you know, like traditional gods, they would, they would view this as the traditional religion. You had these um, mystery cults, mystery religions. So think of like, um, uh, Osiris, the, the, like in Egypt. So they have these gods, and they're, they're described as a mystery religion or a, or a cult. I'm trying to summarize it quickly. You had some interaction, like a personal immortality that you would receive by a, by a relationship with this God. And you would somehow participate in their, like there's some, you know, a lot of times there's some kind of dying of the God and then a rising. And then that was celebrated in like fertility, springtime, almost like resurrection uh, accounts. And by your participating in, by your having um, sacraments or, you know, they would have like feasts where they drank the blood of slain animals in sacrifice and they would participate that. There are elements that are sort of reflective of, of the true Christian faith. And that's why, you know, so like there's... <clears throat> Washing, ritual washing elements. Some of these religions had things like that. They had um, a, me a sacred meal that they celebrated, whether you're talking Judaism in the Passover or Christianity in the Lord's Supper. And so the Romans lumped Christians in with these groups a lot of times. Also because um, Christianity wasn't a state religion of any nation. There, wasn't, there, was, no, there was no Christian nation to conquer. And so the Romans had to, what do we do? How do we deal with the, this kind of, they viewed these as like rogue religions. That's why they called the Christians atheists because they don't believe in the officially sanctioned gods. Okay? And the, the success of Rome was an indication that our gods are better than any of everyone else's gods. Okay? In order to also further support this idea and the support, you look at um, these gods as the one who, uh, one who bring us success, fortune, peace, stability, and the Romans had that. And, and they say, okay, where does that come from? Why do we have that? Who is, they didn't have like an incarnate like Christ. They didn't have a, a, a human being as the embodiment of that, except in the Roman Emperor. The Roman Emperor then sort of becomes this embodiment of the spirit of Rome that is your kind of savior, your God. And so to worship, so it wasn't like the emperor's going around thinking that he's God, or the people thinking that the emperor is actually God. What they view is it's the source of every good. This is exactly what Luther points out in the large catechism when we talk about the first commandment. You should fear, love, and trust in God. Whatever you trust in, that's your God. And that's kind of how they viewed the emperor. Right? Even though they didn't articulate it that way. Um, so it wasn't like worshiping the emperor like they actually think he's a divine being. But that everything good that they have, the peace of the, of the realm, um, of the, that they're able to live in peace, that is accountable to the Roman protection. Um, and so sacrificing to the, to the Roman emperor um, was a way of, you know, paying, paying service uh, to, to, to your, um, your, like, ultimate patron, the one who's taking care of you, okay? So Christianity is suspect um, and, and kind of viewed in this camp of these mystery religions and cults and they want to get rid of it. Um, so the first quote on, on the page... It's written by uh, Fronto. Fronto was, um, he, he was a tutor. So one of, the, one of the emperors on your sheet, Marcus Aurelius, 161 to 180. Uh, Fronto was, was Aurelius, him and his brother, who co-reigned as, as emperors uh, over Rome in the early years. He was their tutor growing up, their, their teacher. He writes a number of other things. But this is one thing he's writing about the Christians. This is, this is the way they understand what Christians do. And, and which is why you can also understand some of these writings by Christians where they have to defend, they have to make an apology, defense of what they do because this is what people were saying about them. 
Now, the story of their initiating novices is as detestable as it is notorious. An infant concealed in meal so as to deceive the unwary is placed before the one who is in charge of the rites. This infant hiding under the meal is struck by the novice who thinks he is striking harmless blows but kills him with blind and hidden wounds. Horrible to relate, so they kill the baby. Uh, Horrible to relate, they drink his blood, eagerly distributing the members of his body, and are united by this sacrifice and pledged to common silence by their awareness of guilt. Everyone knows about their banquet, and everyone speaks of it. People of both sexes and every age come to the banquet on the accustomed day with children, sisters, mothers. There, after much feasting, when the banquet has grown warm and the heat of drunkenness burns into incestuous desire, a dog tied to the lampstand is aroused to run and jump by throwing a bit of food beyond the length of the rope by which he is tied. Thus, with the light overturned and put out, the haphazard embraces of shameful desire take place in the shameless darkness. So they think they're a bunch of, this is like this big orgy and like bloodbath where they're killing and eating children, drinking their blood, and then, you know, having this... So they want to get rid of this. That's what they, that's what they have in, think, think is going on. Um, Nero, you've maybe heard of Nero, the emperor. Um, you've ever heard of the, the, the fire of Rome, the great fire of Rome? So that's in 64 AD. Um, in July, I believe, of, of 64. Big fire. Um, and there are rumors that Nero set the, started the fire, that by his command, he, he had arranged for the fire to burn. Nero did not help himself by after the fire, you know, and the, the, the area where the, the uh, fire took place, he builds like new palace and new temples on the land. So the speculation is, or the, 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 the rumor is, that he started the fire in order to clear the land so that he could do these, because he did build on this land after the fire. Uh, I, don't, I don't think anyone knows like, how the fire actually started. Uh, but, uh, but the rumors are going around that, that this has happened. So, uh, so now this is Tacitus writing this. So this is also ancient. Um, he's writing this um, in his record. He says, to kill the rumors that Nero had started the fire. Nero charged and tortured some people hated for their evil practices, the group properly known as Christians. The founder of this sect, Christ, had been put to death by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, when Tiberius was emperor. Their deadly superstition, notice that, so you notice that his dates and how just without, without a shadow of doubt, everyone, like it's in the record that, that they, the Romans had executed Christ, Right? Um, uh, their deadly superstition had been suppressed temporarily, but it was beginning to spring up again. Not now just in Judea, but even in Rome itself, where all kinds of sordid and shameful activities are attracted and catch on. First, those who confessed to being Christians were arrested. Then on information obtained from them, hundreds were convicted, more for their antisocial beliefs than for their fire-raising. In their deaths, they were made a mockery. They were covered in the skins of wild animals, torn to death by dogs crucified or set on fire, so that when darkness fell, they burned like torches in the night. Nero opened up his gardens for this spectacle and gave a show in the arena where he mixed with the crowd or stood dressed as a charioteer on a chariot, As a result, although they were guilty of being Christians and deserved death, people began to feel sorry for them, for they realized they were being massacred, not for the public good, but to satisfy one man's mania. So even this ancient writer recognizes that, okay, so they're guilty of being Christians, but you went overboard and you end up, um, you make people sorry for them because uh, because of how, um, because it wasn't in the public, you know, it wasn't. It, it was for his own purposes. So it's a depiction of the you know, lighting the Christians on fire and using them as torches. Give a little bit of light. Yeah. That's 64. So you um, remember, um, 
if you look on the timeline, at least this timeline, we, we don't know this, we don't have an accurate record, um, but 64 is also the year that, I don't know, but speculation tradition that Paul, well, Peter and Paul were also executed in Rome. Were they a part of this? We don't know. Um, but there was stuff going on this year, and if they were in Rome, perhaps perhaps the, how they met, met their end there too. But does it have the effect that, uh, that Nero had in mind? Um, they, want to, they want to squelch this thing, right? Which any, you know, any government, I mean, that's what Pontius Pilate, why he allows Jesus to be executed, is he, he fears an uprising, right? And to fear an uprising, he gives in to their demands, he lets them be crucified. Um, every, every ruler wants to avoid an uprising, wants to, to keep things calm, um, and so, did it have that effect? Uh, no. So we saw Tertullian, remember? What Tertullian calls the, the blood of the martyrs. It says the blood of, of Christians is seed. Is seed of the church. Um, <laughs> those who, who want to snuff out the church of Christ only succeed in making it grow, grow more. Not that we're looking for this, <laughs> but in the next quote, long quote here, or long section here, how does the, the empire, how is the empire to deal with the Christian, the Christian problem? And so here you have um, this writing, uh, like a letter to, uh, to the emperor Trajan, so you can see him on your timeline. Uh, no, you can't, because I think he's right after. No, I'm sorry. Yes, he is. He's 98 to 117, right before Hadrian, because Hadrian's going to have a, a writing too. So Pliny writes, It is my rule, sire, to refer to you in matters where I am uncertain. For who can better direct my hesitation or instruct my ignorance? I was never present at any trial of Christians, therefore I do not know what are the customary penalties or investigations and what limits are observed. I have hesitated a great deal on the question whether there should be any distinction of ages, whether the weak should have the same treatment as the more robust, whether those who recant should be pardoned, or whether a man who has ever been a Christian should gain nothing by ceasing to be such, whether the name itself even if innocent of crime, should be punished. Like, do you, do you punish someone just because they're called a Christian, or do they actually have to commit a crime? Can, can you put someone in jail just by association with other people that you think are bad? Or do you actually have to, like, you know, say that there's actually a crime committed? He's not sure about that. <laughs> or the only, only the crimes attaching to that name. You know, this is what we hear these kind of people do, so you don't actually have to be proven of of doing the crime, you can just be associated with that group, and those kind of people do that kind of thing, so you know, guilt, guilt by association. Meanwhile, this is the course that I've adopted in the case of those brought before me as Christians. I ask them if they are Christians. If they admit, admit it, I repeat the question a second or third time. <laughs> you know, are, I'm going to give you a chance to, to second, you know, if, are you sure you want to say that? <laughs> is, um, Second or third time, threatening capital punishment. If they persist, I sentence them to death. For I do not doubt that whatever kind of crime it may be to which they have confessed, their pertinacity and inflexible obstinacy should certainly be punished. <laughs> Just the fact that they won't give in is, is you know, bad enough. Uh, there were others who displayed a like madness and whom I reserved to be sent to Rome since they were Roman citizens. So as an example, Paul, that's why um, Paul was a Roman citizen, and that gives him certain privileges, like being tried more uh, carefully and being sent to Rome to appeal to Caesar. They, they have the right of appeal, um, which non-Roman citizens did not. Thereupon, the usual result followed. The very fact of my dealing with the question led to a wider spread of the charge, and a great variety of cases were brought before me. An anonymous pamphlet was issued containing many names. Uh, 
you know, so you could, someone, someone publishes a list of Christians. Can you understand why the Christians were careful about who they, you know, they were very careful about who they received, you know, so that whole three-year needing a sponsor, that, that all comes, you know, we talk about baptismal sponsors. That comes out of this time when they have to be careful they have to make sure that someone is going to be a Christian and isn't going to be writing one. And once, once I get in, now I make a list of everyone who's here, just in case I need it later on. Um, it was dangerous. All who denied that they were or had been Christians, I considered should be discharged uh, because they called upon the gods at my dictation and did reverence with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought forward to, for this purpose, together with the statues statues of the deities, and especially because they cursed Christ, a thing which, it is said, genuine Christians cannot be induced to do. And so you saw that, like in uh, like Polycarp, for example, they say, you know, curse Christ, and he says, how, how can I? That, that, that's horrid. Um, I, and even, even the, the, the non-Christians recognize that Christians would not do that. Um, Others named by the informer first said that they were Christians and then denied it, declaring that they had been but were so no longer, some having recanted three years or more before, and one or two or as long as 20 years. They all worshipped your image and the statues of the gods and cursed Christ. So that's how you could get out of persecution, was say that you weren't a Christian and you'd sort of have to prove it by doing a sacrifice to the, or worshipping the image of the emperor or one of the statues that they had brought for that purpose. Prove that you're not a Christian. But they declared that the sum of, I mean, oh, there's a lot of places we could go with that. You know, I was thinking of, of today, you know, like, it, it may not be specifically Christian, but maybe certain Christian beliefs that people are asked to disavow um, and, and, and say that, um, you know, and it kind of in the, the world of, of wokeness and, you know, that someone needs to, you know, put up a certain, if on a certain day you need to put up a certain, like, profile pic on Facebook that shows a certain flag or something like that or some that will then get you out of trouble because then you, you kind of paid lip service to the thing that everyone's talking about and everyone kind of, uh, there's, it's a weird a weird thing where there's there's sentiment that everyone's saying and they try to there's there's a pressure on everyone to say the say the slogan and and uh, pass along the the thing that everyone's saying at the time. Uh, where were we? Uh, they declared that the sum of their guilt or error had amounted only to this that on an appointed day. <laughs> this, so this is the Christians saying, this is all we do. This is, this is what we're you know, being charged with. Um, this is, all that I've done is on an appointed day, which would be on an appointed day, by Sunday, they had been accustomed to meet before daybreak and to recite a hymn antiphonally to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by an oath, not for, for the commission of any crime, but to abstain from theft, robbery, adultery, breach of faith, and not to deny a den- deposit when it was claimed. <laughs> Look, this is all we do. We get together and we promise to be good. <laughs> we promise not to commit adultery. And we promise, you know, like we, this, this, these are the only, this is the only swearing that, that goes on here. It's promising not to do bad stuff. This is what we're being charged with. Um, da, da, da. After the conclusion of this ceremony, it was their custom to depart and meet again to take food, but it was ordinary and harmless food, and they had ceased this, they had a potluck after. There, there was a thing in the early church called the, the a love feast um, that they would, it might be kind of like, our, like a potluck, it was a fellowship meal. Um, later on, that died away, and, they, and sometimes that was connected with their celebration of the Lord's Supper early on. Um, eventually that the other feast died away and was left just, just the celebration of the, of the Lord's Supper. Um, they had ceased this practice after my edict, in which, accordance with your orders, I had forbidden secret societies. I thought it the more necessary, therefore, to find out what truth there was in this by applying torture to two maidservants who were called deaconesses. But I found nothing but a depraved and extravagant superstition. And I therefore postponed my examination and had recourse to you for consultation. <laughs> like, all they do is that they're just, they just have this weird superstition 
Um, and so I need to, need to ask more about this. The matter to me seemed to be to justify my consulting you, especially on account of the number of those imperiled. For many persons of all ages and classes and of both sexes are putting, being put in peril by accusation, and this will go on. The contagion of this superstition has spread not only in the cities, but in the villages and rural districts as well. So again, you see sort of this glimpse into the early church and the spread of it from one of their enemies saying, this thing's taking off. Um, Yet it seems capable of being checked and set right. We can stop it, though. There is no shadow of doubt that the temples, which have been almost deserted, are beginning to be frequented once more, and that the sacred rites which have been long neglected, are being renewed. So this is the, you know, the Romans complaining about people don't go to our temples anymore as much. It, it, um, the, 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 the pagan Romans complaining that their church attendance is down um, because the Christians. Um, but he says, but we've got a chance. We can, we can do this. Um, that sacrificial victims are for sale everywhere, whereas till recently a buyer was rarely to, be, rarely to be found. From this, it is easy to imagine what a host of men could, set, could be set right were they given the chance of recantation. If we just arrest them and allow them to recant their position, we can restore them to, to the Roman religion. Trajan, the emperor, replies, You have taken the right line, my dear Pliny, in examining the cases of those denounced to you as Christians, for no hard and fast rule can be laid down of universal application. They are not to be sought out. If they are informed again and the charge is proved, they are to be punished with this reservation, that if anyone denies that he is a Christian and actually proves it, that is, by worshiping our gods, he shall be pardoned as a result of his recaptation, however suspect he may have been with respect to the past. Pamphlets published anonymously should carry no weight in any charge whatsoever. They constitute a very bad precedent and are also out of keeping with this age. Uh, So at least the Romans were good at their uh, rules of evidence and they don't allow an anonymous charge to stand just, you know, willy-nilly. You know, they just don't don't charge people without actually... um, And so then the the last part... um, Emperor Hadrian's rescript. So this is, Emperor Hadrian is the, the following emperor. And uh, a rescript is basically, it's a decree that comes in response to something. Um, so similarly, kind of similar to, to Trajan's response where he's, you know, it says, yeah, accuse them, put them, you know, try them. Uh, if they recant, fine. Uh, Hadrian uh, kind of narrows that on just a little bit. If the inhabitants of your province will so far sustain this petition of theirs as to accuse the Christians regularly in some court of law, I do not forbid their doing so. But I will not permit resort to mere clamor and excitement. If someone brings a charge and furnishes proof that said men are violating the laws, you shall fix the punishment in proportion to the offense. So they have to break a law, is what he's kind of saying. Above all, by Hercules... You shall see to it that if any man through mere spite brings an accusation against any of these persons, you shall punish him as severely as his malice deserves. Okay, so you can't just charge someone without proof, um, and they have to be you know have to prove that they actually uh, break a law. And if someone does, it, they can be they they can be tried for defamation if they bring a charge against someone. They claim you know, you don't like someone, just call them a Christian. And that would be enough to get them into trouble. Um, it's like cancel culture. Huh? It's, it's, it's you know, if, if you, know, you, want, you want to get someone fired, you, just, you, you can accuse them of, you know, something that he said 40 years ago or, and saying that was racist or something like that. And they would, that, that would, would go through. But the Romans were generally pretty good in law and order. Um, and so you, you do see some. So there wasn't, at this point, like I said, there wasn't like widespread decree of mass persecution. We're going to see that in the next era of history more, more directly, but not at this point. Okay? I think, well, we're going to stop there because that's all we've got the rest of the sheet. Do you have any questions? We've we got a couple minutes yet the next section that we're going to be going into is teachings um, and traditions 
from this era. So we're going to kind of, it'll be some review because we've already mentioned some of the false teachings like Gnosticism and so on, but we'll go through those and see uh, references to some of those. Again, we want mostly to see something in this time period that, okay, this, this is where something that we still see today, where this all comes from. Um, it's, got a, it's got a track record. Um, but I don't think that we're going to get, I mean, I don't know if, we don't have class next week, by the way. So I'm going to be in, I'm going to be in Washington. Um, and Pastor Millenhart will be coming from Cottonwood, so he won't be able to come. He's got church this time. So, uh, and church is at 1030. Oh, you'll hear that <laughs> a couple of times. Uh, so then we'll, then we'll pick this up following week. I don't think we'll have enough time before summer starts to, to go into the next section, like 250 to, to 500. So we'll probably um, maybe just do a couple one-off small topics until we break for the summer, until we switch service times. And, um, but this morning, uh, choir singing. So I'm going to cut off just a little bit early to give a little bit of time also. So you'll see that I put out a different hymn for this morning. So on my heart, imprint thine image, or imprint your image, uh, is our closing hymn today. And we've sung that at the end of Bible class uh, previously. So I told Kim, I think that we can do this a cappella at the close of church. Um, but I thought I'd give you the heads up on that, and we get a chance to practice. Um, and can choir members that can give, a, give us a, a warm-up. But I think... Uh, to say heads up. And so at the end, at the end, go ahead and sing sing the Amen as you wish. Um, I, I gave Kim the heads up, so I don't think she'll, she'll play through the hymn at the end of the service, but then uh, leave us to sing. So. <laughs>